Hello everybody and welcome back to yet another episode of FNI Rap Chat on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Um, we're, this is really cool today because we've someone new in the studio who's co-hosted. Who might that be, Mia Malarkey? Hi folks, so <laughs> I am Mia Malarkey and I am delighted to be here. This is my first ever podcast ever um, and I'm super excited about it and I'm honoured that you guys asked me to come on board. Oh, it's, it's, it's a, you're a shoe in Oh great! <laughs> so it's great to have you. Your, is that, is that? your boots are under the bed already. Uh, what was the what was the sort of qualifier? Uh, everybody likes you, which is always <laughs> a good indicator. Um, Little do they know. <laughs> yeah, it's still it's still early in the game. Uh, but yeah, no, um, y- you know, uh, both everybody that w- yeah, you're one of those people that everybody likes, and you're very Jesus, and you're very engaging, and and you don't take compliments very well. <laughs> no. So obviously, you know that that's part of the that's the prerequisite in order it's to, get, to the, be a host. It's the Galway gift to the gab, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, we want to diversify, and we're very calculated, and we want more people <laughs> listening on the west of Ireland as well. Uh, no, but you know, uh, um, different perspectives, different voices. All of these things help, and we want to freshen things up a bit as well. So right. thanks so much. Yeah, uh, I I wasn't in for this one today. So who did you have? I had the absolutely wonderful Kato Tool. I was really excited when it was going to be Kato Tool. It was yeah. a little bit nerve-wracking. I've never actually chatted with her before. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, she's this amazing person and her, comes from an amazing family. Yeah. And then, of course, she was a complete sweetheart. And <laughs> I kind of didn't want to stop the podcast. We could have just chatted for hours. Yeah, we often say, like someone said to me recently, oh, you always say, oh, we could have chatted for hours. But it really feels like that. Yeah. Because, you don't, you know, you wanted to be that chat in the pub where you chat for four or five hours. Totally. Um, yeah, I was, I'm delighted I wasn't sitting in on this one because I was kind of afraid myself because of the massive, uh, you know, I'm a massive fan of her father's, obviously, but also I'm aware of Kate also, and I'm a big fan of um, her, her Facebook account, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously her work as well, but, you know, yeah, and we've been trying to get her for a while, so we're really, really, really excited to get this one, so it kind of builds a little bit with some people that you like, you know. Yeah. Um, but was it good? Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. It was really easy. Like, uh, for a first podcast, it didn't, you know, I just sat down and we just chatted. Like, we could have had no microphones. It was really fluent. So, yeah. I'm delighted. I'm going to do a whole lot more of these podcasts. Well, I next time, you know, we'll get some macaroons in and, 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 and tea and you can do, like, yeah. afternoon tea as well. Settle me in. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, if you would like, uh, welcome, me and Malarkey. Uh, we're delighted to have you. And if you'd like to support... Film Network Ireland, or this podcast in particular, head on over to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash FNI. And for all our latest uh, news and events, Mia, where should people go for that? www.wearefni.com. Spot on. And uh, yeah. That's my first time doing this, so <laughs> it's all written in front of me. And Paul had to read it out to me twice already. <laughs> go to www. <laughs> Uh, Google Translate. Uh, like I'm literally reading it out wrong, so I think I got that one right, didn't I? No, that was fine. Yeah, okay. um, the podcast is available on uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, where else? Apple Podcasts, and on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Yeah, it's, you know. Our yes, w- I yes. nailed that. Yeah, yeah. Mm, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> uh, and yeah, wherever you get your podcast content, I think it might be on Stitcher and a few others as well. So, yeah, um, uh, coming up as well, we have a number of events and stuff, online events, um, over the next couple of months. So keep an eye on the website um, and on our social media channels for more. So without further ado, who have we got? Kate O'Toole. Beautiful.
So hello, lovely Kate O'Toole. Delighted to have you in the studio with us today. Very Delighted exciting. Delighted to be here. Thank mm-hmm. you for asking me. Very lovely to have you. So um, we've just touched on some great topics, the FLA and your time with the Irish Film Board, a.k.a. Screen Ireland. And uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, you've done a lot of acting in theatre and you've done a lot of acting uh, for screen. Um, but I was wondering about going back in time quite early <laughs> and get a sense of, I guess, you know, growing up with two parents who were actors and what your childhood was like. There must have been some interesting scenes, some characters. Yeah, lots. And I wasn't quite born in uh, a trunk in the Princess Theatre in Pocatello, Idaho, but uh-huh. close, very close. Uh-huh. I was born in Stratford-on-Avon because my father was performing with the Royal Shakespeare Company at the time. And one of my earliest memories is actually of being in a trunk in the costume department, one of those big wicker trunks they Mm. used to have. And I remember the um, costume department had women there who would be knitting the chain mail for the the soldier's armor. Wow. Yeah, with metal thread. And um, that was my first ever stage appearance. I think (laughs) I was about a month old. Uh And my father was in a production of, um, he was doing. He was very renowned for uh, being in Shylock, playing Shylock. That was one of his first big successes as mm-hmm. an actor. And he was also doing um, the Taming of the Shrew, which, if it's done in full, is actually a play within a play. So at the beginning, you have a troupe of strolling players looking for somewhere to set up their tent and do a performance and maybe stay the night. So I was the babe in arms. Mm-hmm. If, uh, among the strolling players amazing at the age of one and I think that is the first and last job I ever got due to parental influence <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the scene in the seventh seal where they have a you know there's the mom and the dad in the little carriage and they're bringing their kid around it's really sweet yes um and then so what was it like for you you know growing up as a kid and as a teenager um, well, I um, I was on the road a lot uh, with my parents when my father was away a lot. Actually, I didn't meet him after that experience on stage at the Royal Shakespeare Company. I didn't meet him properly until I was two because he was away shooting Lawrence. It took two full years and, mm. and more. Mm. So I remember going out to Seville. They were doing the interiors at the end and they were all done in Seville. So I flew out for my second birthday and remember being kind of confused because I met my father on the set and of course he was in his full Lawrence regalia and at that age you don't know if the person is Lawrence or not you sort of think yeah okay that's my father is Lawrence of Arabia fine wow. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and then touring a lot with my mother she um still I mean she's 86 now but she still works and um loves touring some actors love it some actors don't but I was on tour with her when I was still a very small toddler and uh, staying in, you know, hopeless digs in the early 60s. It wasn't like it is now. Uh, there were no regulations there for hot water or anything. Mm. And she remembers seeing me at the age of three or something like that, marching into our digs and testing the mattress for comfort and finding it lumpy and saying, oh, fuck. <laughs> At which point she thought, okay, maybe being on the road is not such a good idea. Mm. <laughs> so I was taken off the road. So I was well used to theatres and things, you know, before I could crawl, basically. Mm. And 
I know your parents played together in a couple of things. Yeah, that's how they met. Um, my father and mother met in a, pro a stage production of a play called The Holiday, and they were cast together as brother and sister because they do have vaguely similar face shape. Or, I know, yes, they do. They, yes, they both, have, they both have cheekbones, and there is yeah. a sort of similarity. And the strong nose. And that's and right. Kind of very defined bone structure. Yes, mm. exactly. So that's how they met. Ah, and did they play in Beckett? Was yes, um, a few films actually they did together. They did uh, Beckett. My mother plays the Welsh, sings a song in Welsh, mm. and I think she's the cause. She's the woman who's the cause of a lot of trouble. Oh, very good between them. Um, Great the, film. Yeah, well, she grew up with Richard Burton, you see, because she's Welsh. He's Welsh, and ah. they were in Radio Wales together mm, before amazing. either of them had, you know, taken up acting professionally in London. Mm -hmm. so they went way back and then they also my parents also did Under Milkwood together which was Burton again um, and what else did they do they did Goodbye Mr. Chips together that didn't go down too well because my mother won all the awards <laughs> for her cameo <laughs> poor dad <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else I think there was something else but I can't remember offhand um, but they didn't make a habit of it. I think it was quite stressful. I think it would be quite stressful to work with your spouse yeah. that closely. Yeah. I don't think I'd like it. Yeah, very intense. Yeah. And so was there a kind of a, a theatricality to your household then? Very much so, yeah. Our living room was called the green room, <laughs> not just because it was green, uh, but because that's, the, that's what the room is called in a theatre backstage where mm. the actors relax either before or after the show and get to meet each other and hang out and have tea or drinks and that's the green room. So yeah, our living room was the green room because it you know, was the place where actors hang out and relax and have tea or drinks. And we had um, a little stage on there as well. It was a split level room. So it took very little for people to get up and do a turn or a tap dance or Great. something. And there were always interesting people around, but not just actors. Um, you know, the 60s were a great time in London for all kinds of new writing. It was very exciting. So um, my parents were very, very good friends with Tom Stoppard, Ted Hughes, you know, all the Adrian Mitchell, the great poets mm. in England of that time. They were always over at the house. They behaved worse than the actors. <laughs> Beware of poets. <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've probably had like met all these interesting characters and there would have been a huge amount of culture, I guess, in your house. Yeah, there was a lot. It was a very artistic household. Certainly, mm. I never learned anything about normal life. That's oh. for sure. Uh, but of course, you know, I think meeting interesting people is sort of wasted on the youth because it doesn't really mean anything to you then. And you don't know they're interesting yet. No, you don't. You've no reference. No, exactly. I just remember uh, Richard Burton being drunk all the time. <laughs> Stay away from him. Yeah, yeah. Um, who was I impressed? I guess I was impressed with meeting Arthur Lowe because he was in Dad's Army mm. at the time. And I loved watching Dad's Army with my grandmother. So to meet him was really something. Mm. And then my mother was always working with, um, mostly in stage with people like John Gielgud and, you know, Olivier and all the, all the great stage actors I met a great deal of, uh, but with her, I think she did a TV once with an actor called Jeffrey Bailden, who was famous predominantly for performing as Cat Weasel for children. And I was <laughs> a child at the time, and so meeting Cat Weasel, that was one of my favorite shows. Yeah, yeah, So amazing. meeting Cat Weasel was much more of a big deal than meeting Liz Taylor. <laughs> and so how do you think this impacted you, all that culture, all these characters, like what does that do to a person? 
Um, well, I guess I never, I don't know. I didn't, um, there was no sort of consistency to the household. Uh, so I grew up never fearing uh, a lack of a pensionable existence. You know, I never, I never knew what it was to work nine to five, six, five or six days a week, uh, to know what your salary is at the end of every week. Like that was, that was all kind of beyond me, completely beyond me. So um, I never had any fear about just trying to make a living as a creative person. Mm, which is amazing because I know a lot of creative people I know, their parents are like, when are you going to get a job? Or, you know, when are you going to find something stable? Or, you know, there's this anxiety because they've grown up with regularity. And like I've had 10 years of fighting with my parents about like, this is what I'm doing. It's mm. totally unstable and it's just what I'm going to do. So, you know, it's kind of cool that you didn't have that pressure. Yes, I, I know. But, but maybe there's a flip side of... Of course, there's a flip side to everything. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so was it always, let's say, your destiny that you would go into the arts or was it something you considered? Um, I think the arts, definitely. I was drawn more to writing than anything else my whole life, really, and got into acting quite by accident. I never thought of myself as being an actress. Uh, but I got into the Yale Drama School to study dramaturgy, which is um, related to writing more than performing. Um, but while I was there, of course, one of the directing students asked me to be in something. And I, I said, I'd never done any acting because I went to a very academic school. I got into one of the top schools in England academically. It wasn't actually even a private school. You couldn't pay to go there. You could only pass the exam to mm. go there. So I'd been there and they didn't have a drama department. They didn't do things like that. You either went to Oxford or Cambridge or Trinity to study biochemistry or you were nothing, you know. So it didn't cross your mind to be an actress at this point? like you? No, it just wasn't something that was offered at school. So it wasn't part of my experience. Um, no, I was more interested in writing. Mm. I think I wanted to run away and be an intern or an apprentice on a newspaper when I was about 13. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up at Yale studying uh, dramaturgy and fell into acting by accident. But the moment I got on a, to a stage for the first time ever, it did feel as though certain parts of the jigsaw had suddenly mm. fallen into place. It was a bit of an epiphany, I must say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was accidental. And then were, was there sort of, at an early stage, a role th that you were like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is my calling, or I'm so glad this is where I've ended up, or like... Was there a moment in, let's say, your late teens, early 20s where a light bulb went on with acting being the thing? No, that only happened when I found myself on stage mm. in America for the first time ever. That's when the light bulb went on. When was that? That was in 1980, early 80s. I, I went to live in America for 10 years, all through the 80s. Mm, okay. And that's where I began acting. So when did you do The Dead with John Huston? Was that quite early? Was that around? Yeah, that was mid-80s, I think. Mm. I'd, I'd, I'd left college and I was acting professionally by then. My first, actually, my first um, professional job where I got my equity card and everything else was at the Irish Arts Centre in Manhattan, which is, at the time was nothing. It was like a garage and it was being run mm. by Jim Sheridan before he'd ever made a film. Mm. So that's how I began my career, very happily, yeah. in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. Very uh -huh. off, 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 off Broadway. Mm. It's quite posh now, but it wasn't then. That's great. And, and so, like, obviously you were doing a lot more stage. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then just sort of, like, dipping your toe in film? Yeah, I've always done more stage. Mm. Um, 
not particularly by design, but now that I look back on it, I think, yeah, it's where I have the most fun. It's where I feel the most at home. I think it's the most fun you can have standing up. Mm. <laughs> live. There's nothing better than live. Mm. Yeah. So, like, how would you differentiate screen from stage? Well, for me, it's a bit like the difference between doing something live and recording something in a studio. They're vastly different. Mm. Yeah. And you love that electricity of the audience. I do. That, yeah. That, you know, you can't fix a mistake. You can't. Edit. Yes. Yes. I love all that. Mm. Yeah. And the camaraderie that you get from being with the cast. You do get it on films and TV as well, but it's not as intense. Mm. Yeah. And then I suppose with film, it's like broken down into tiny pieces. So you don't get that flow. Yes. Like you do on stage. Exactly. And I was ruined for a film career by my first film being with John Huston. And he shot everything in sequence. Mm. And he also knew exactly what he wanted. So he had this wonderful confidence that enabled him to know if he'd got a, a print in the first take. And many, many of the sequences in the dead were first and only takes wow yeah that's amazing yeah and he shot it in sequence so this of course spoilt me because i thought ah. all films were like that <laughs> <laughs> and they're absolutely no. not yeah 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 because also aren't there a lot of long takes on is there like a lot of steady cam shots or? yes there was it, yes all that dancing mm. yeah that's right because it feels theatrical in that it feels mm. like the actors had a bit of freedom to move around like you would on a stage mm -hmm. for some of the shots. Yes. And he also did something really interesting, which you, strictly speaking wasn't necessary for the film, for the look of the film. But um, he uh, was in a wheelchair and on oxygen when he made it. He was very ill. He had emphysema and he only had, I think, one third of one lung left functioning. Wow. So he was on oxygen the whole time and uh, it was difficult for him to breathe. You could see his chest was quite labored. Mm. But one of the things he decided to do on the set was we shot it in this huge warehouse in Valencia in California. And we could easily have dressed up the set all on the ground floor. We had, we had the keys on the ground floor with fake snow and wonderful backdrop with lights in the windows. It looked so real. It was lovely. Uh, love tricks like that. Uh -huh. um, but for the for the sequences that were in the house, he actually had the set built so that we were up on the second floor of the house mm. as it would have been in reality. So we had to climb up this very narrow wooden staircase, which he couldn't get up because he was in a wheelchair. And I asked him, I said, well, how come you put it up high when it could easily, you know, the audience is never going to know where it is. And he said, because the actors will know. The actors will have a sense of being on the second floor, mm. which is true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I'll never forget the first um, shot on that film because he had it all rigged up. John had it all rigged up so he, he could see us on the monitor down below and direct us with the microphone attached to speakers in the room up above. And so <laughs> when the first action boomed out, it was like this voiceless voice, this, this bodiless voice of God. You know, it was, but you know what? The filming really invigorated him. It wasn't long before he was pulling the oxygen tube out of his nose and standing up. And, you know, it gave him it gave him, a, you know, another lease of life. Mm. It was, was it his last film? It was. And yeah. he knew it would be. Mm. Yeah. But it certainly invigorated him. And it was kind of a daring film because it's mm. not, you know, a classical narrative for cinema. You know, it's sort of a James Joyce meandering narrative, sort of going in and out of people's thoughts. And yeah, it's not it's no, typical. No, not at all. And he pulled off an extraordinary trick as well, which in a way, when you watch the film, the rhythms of the film 
somehow replicate the feelings that you have when you're reading the short story, when it's time to turn the page, when it's time to look at another paragraph. You know how a, a written story feels different from when you see it on the screen? Well, I think he actually in some way managed to replicate mm. what Joyce's intentions were in terms of breaking up the story. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, and very hard to achieve. Definitely mm. a, an adapted novel ends up being quite a different beast yes. on screen. Yes, so. and I asked him, he was very funny and self-deprecating because a lot of his films were adaptations. You know, he was a very literate filmmaker. Yes. So... Um, he had great heroes of authors who he loved adapting. Mm. And I think most of his films were adaptations, which he would have, you know, done a lot of. So I said to him, what's, what's, how do you go about adapting something like The Dead? And he said, oh, it's very simple, honey. It's very simple. He said, you just, you get a highlighter and you highlight all the dialogue in the story and then you throw away everything else. <laughs> and then you have a screenplay. <laughs> Oh, I wish he was still around. I'd love to yeah. have some of that. Um, there was one, I can't think of the name that he adapted from a novel, and it's about a um, a preacher. And, oh, yeah, Sugar the Name. It's, it's a really good, I saw it years and years ago, and it's one of his adaptations, and it's an American female author from the 50s. Mm. And it was just, it had this strange, the, the preacher ends up going blind and, completely kind of losing his mind and it's it was just beautiful but also I, I feel like he was quite daring doing really unusual stories that again don't fit the Hollywood kind of structure at all you know and go into weird unexpected psychological places or you know he'll just let a scene unfold where the actors are just sort of it, it's not narrative what's happening they're just being characters in a room in a space and things are unfolding you know wonderful isn't it it's great fun yeah, it's yeah. so much fun it's very refreshing yes um, were there any other films then along the way that you found like, you know, that were meaningful to you or that you loved or? Um, no, not, <laughs> no, not really. No. I mean, I think my favorite job in front of a camera without question is a sitcom that I did for the BBC. And the reason that was, is my favorite job is because if you have an audience for a sitcom, which you should have. Um, it kind of straddles both media mm. very well. You have an audience and at the same time you have a camera, but instead of taking six months to shoot something, you do it all in one day. Mm. Um, so for me, that's a very happy medium. Yeah, okay. That's where I like to be. So you're definitely like a big fan of stage over screen. As an experience, like as an actress, that's kind of... Well, screen affords you different things mm. but yeah I'm definitely more at home on stage yeah. and so then we can touch a little bit on the theater stuff I mean I know it's not film industry but it's like <laughs> they're they're cousins you know you got to as a filmmaker you got to go to the abbey and you got you know you want to be catching do you, do you? I, I wonder I, I would I would try and catch stuff because you know it's it's actors it's performance it's dialogue you know there's so much crossover and sometimes you just see something that blows you away. And you're like, I'm going to steal that idea. That was an amazing idea. <laughs> um, or you might just find an actor, you know, like. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't think film actors, I mean, film directors, I don't know if they do that anymore. I know that um, casting agents hardly go to the theater anymore. They just sit at home watching self-tapes of people. Uh, yeah. And actually, we were just talking about self-tapes and yeah. we were kind of saying for younger people, it's a more comfortable thing to do. But for the older generation of actors out there, it's like. 
there's nobody around, there's no chemistry, you don't get to perform for the director, you know, there's nothing to kind of bounce your energy off and get feedback. So it's a completely different experience. But then for younger people, they're so used to just online presentation. So you don't have to worry about chemistry or being in a room. It's almost anxiety inducing being in a room, but you can just record yourself and do it 50 times until you nail it kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know if like you, you're definitely not into the self-tape side of it. Oh, well, I have to be because it's the way it's gone. You know, it's mm. already it's a thing. But I, I've decided to embrace it rather than find it difficult all the time. I've decided I'm going to do a little crash course on rudimentary editing, nothing fancy, mm -hmm. and play all the parts myself because, yeah. because it's boring having to look for somebody to read off camera for you. That's always a hassle. If you live alone like I do, mm. uh, you're always begging friends, to, oh, please, can <laughs> you just come over and do this? And it's very boring for them. And I hate asking people to do it. Mm. So I've decided to make it fun for myself. I'm going to play all the parts. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see one of those self yeah. tapes. <laughs> yes, even if I don't get the part, at least I'll know I've had fun doing it. <laughs> that sounds good. And so maybe we'll, we'll be, we can move forward in time a bit to, let's say, the Irish Film Board. Sure. And yeah, what was that like and how did you get brought into it? Uh, well, it was a ministerial, it was very funny, actually. It was a ministerial appointment. I, I guess it still is. I'm not sure. Um, but I was at home in Connemara and um it was about half past nine at night not a time when anybody usually phones for work it's always you know, family or something the phone rang and it was the, the minister for arts at the time and um he said hello this is the minister and i said hello really i thought no somebody's winding me up okay but it did sound like him so I thought, okay he said i was just wondering if you'd like to be on the, on the film board <laughs> and i said Okay. He said, great, great, great. Just like that. Just like that. So I put the phone down. I thought, what just happened? What was that? You know? Oh. Yeah. But what was the, the thinking? like? Oh, well, um, I had, I, I'd um, submitted for it, but that was so long ago. I'd sort of forgotten about it. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, so how long were you there and what was it like? It was a four year term. Hmm. It was interesting because... Like I say, I'm never behind the camera, um, so it was kind of eye-opening. I learned a lot about um, the production side of things, which I didn't know that much about, and also how slowly the wheels of government can turn, mm. interminable kicking of the can down the, you know, just took forever. It took a couple of years to change the name, you know, I was, and I'd never been in a corporate structure before of any kind, so it was an education. Mm. Yeah. And so what were your like duties or what kind of, you know, what did you do in those four years? Oh, it was once a month board meetings and um, just deciding. I mean, really, it was sort of rubber stamping decisions that had already been made. You know, I used to get a lot of phone calls from people with scripts saying, oh, can you help me now that you're on the film board? And I was like, I can't because it has to go to a script reader. And actually, I think I'd have preferred to be a script reader than a board member because that's something to sink your teeth into. Mm -hmm. and, and again, story, which I'm interested in. Um, but no, it, so it was rubber stamping a lot of decisions that had made their way through the digestive tract of the whole board and then ended up in the boardroom. Or a yes or a no. Okay. And then just, you know, debating not just money allocations, but um, new initiatives. Um, I was happy when I left that um, there were two women who were going to stay on the board. And I suppose 
the only thing I regretted about leaving was that the projects which were hadn't been completed yet, you know, you'd like to see something finished that you've started or been in on since the beginning. But I actually felt fine about it because there were two great women on the board who were still there. And that was um, at the time when we were seriously talking about gender equality and quotas and things like that. Which I think has been amazing. This amazing yeah. progressive it's, step. It's, it's worked. It yes. really has. Oh, I was delighted. I remember, was it Anna Cern, I think her name is? She was from the Swedish film board. Yes, that's right. And she came to Ireland I don't know, a few years ago, and she was talking about this 50-50 quota, and it was the head of every institution in Limerick, and I just thought, oh my God, this is amazing. This is like... Well, that's what was going on when I was on the board, ah. and it was wonderful to be a part of that. Well, it was a revolution of sorts, you know, because the thing is, there's such a hunger for women to get their stories out there, but then, you know, there's such a lack of confidence, there's a lack yes. of platforms... There's a lack of role models. Yeah. You know, there's so many obstacles. Yes. And the film board were addressing all of this. That's right, because we had access to the sort of the demographics of the applications that were coming in. And to our shock, we found out that there were very, very few women. Hmm. And it was hard to meet the gender yes. quota because not enough women had enough confidence to even make that first step. Hmm. So I really hope that's changing. Oh, I think it definitely is. And even, I suppose, one of the stats that came out was how many females attend film schools or film college or whatever in Ireland and it was roughly equal to men you know mm. but then after film school or college it's completely goes in the direction of men and the women yeah. do the sort of administration roles yeah. or production management roles or yeah so it was almost like the film board had to take initiative mm. and incentivize yes that's and encourage. exactly that's exactly what happened yeah it was yeah. so great and then how like what was your reaction initially to this idea of it being a quota? Well, I was against quotas all my life, really, up until then, when I realized how necessary they were. You'd love it if they weren't necessary, but the fact stared us in the face. You know, there were very few submissions coming in from women, mm. very few. The, the men really outstripped them. So the only way to address that is to say, okay, it's got to be this, mm. you know, and hopefully get some results from that. Yeah, and it's sort of now, you know, cinemas have the F-rated mark, which is fantastic. I know, like, the IFI are big into it, and I think the Lighthouse, and then, you know, institutions like RTE are, are really trying to make steps on addressing their gender balance in each department. And so, it, you know, it's got this lovely trickle-down impact from those initial yes. conversations. Yes, So I'm delighted you were there. Yes, <laughs> so was yes, happening. it was things like that that were, that were great. Mm. And then, and so, were you part of the FLA at this stage or was that after? Yes, yes. No, I've been at the Galway Film FLA for many, many years, over 10. I don't know how many over 10, but over 10, mm. easily over 10. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> yes. And how, how is that? I mean, it's, it's a joy. I absolutely love it. I tell my agent, don't ever get me a job in July because <laughs> I want to be in Galway at the FLA. Mm. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm a Galwegian, so okay. I would have been you know, heading to the flat every summer for, right. for years and years. Yes. And it's like, you know, one of the most popular festivals. And anytime I've been to festivals abroad, people know of the flat. Mm. It has a reputation. Mm. Um, and then it also has the Galway vibe, which is, you know, fabulous and totally bohemian. Yes. And, you know, the rules go out the window kind of thing. So yeah. 
And I've watched it grow since it, I used to go as a punter, as an audience. I would go and watch the movies in the Cladder Palace mm. when they had nothing. Oh, yeah. But a dusty old screen and a few rats yeah. running behind it. I remember <laughs> and that. And a beer cinema. tent. And a beer tent. Do you remember the beer tent? Yeah. Yes, that was, that was all we had. Wow. All they had for, you know, socializing. This tiny, not even a big beer tent. It was oh, tiny. It's come such a long way. It has. Now we have Oscar accredited categories. Yeah, and, it's amazing. Yeah. And the online, unfortunately, we had to go online this year, but it turned out to be absolutely extraordinary. It was such a success. We reached over 5 million people online. Which is completely incredible. Yeah. I mean, like, it doesn't compare at all to a typical FLA. Mm-mm. It's unbelievable. But I think we managed to maintain the feeling of the FLA, even though, you know, the rowing club was out and staying up all night arguing uh-huh. about films wasn't happening. Uh-huh. But I think we still, yeah, I think we did manage to maintain the, the Galway feel. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And and just, I think, like, as you were saying, Will did a lot of Q&As. And so there was a feeling that you could connect in with different people. And yes, it wasn't just screening films. I mean, I think, well, obviously, we re- the five million that we reached online, they wouldn't have all been watching the films because we had to geolock them for the island yes. of Ireland. Because, honestly, a lot of filmmakers were very brave in allowing us to premiere their films online. Mm. You know, we're internally grateful to them for that. Mm. But we had to be quite strict about where these films would end up being seen. So we, we limited it to Ireland only. But it was great because so exciting at the you know around about eight o'clock you'd see everybody clicking on <laughs> at the same time and it felt like a community. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you were sort of mentioning that in a way there were advantages to being online that never happened before. That's right. I mean, I was particularly struck by, well, obviously the awards went much more smoothly than they usually do because we had to pre-record a lot of it, mm. which meant, though, that every time we said, and the winner is, we were able to show a clip of the winning film. And I just wish we could do that in real life. It would make the, the whole ceremony much more interesting for the audience. Uh, so some things were, you know, worked much better. The pitching competition as well, which mm. I usually sit on the, the jury uh, for, but I had just too much other things to do this year. I couldn't. I'm sorry I missed it because the quality was so good this year. And I keep wondering, did it have something to do with the fact that the contestants didn't have to perform in front of 300 people in a hotel ballroom? You know, they could do it in the privacy of their own homes and they all came in on 90 seconds on the nail and their pitches were just more relaxed and more informative and just everything about it was better. So, yeah, it's you amazing. Know, so that's the dilemma, you know, what can we retain mm. to have at Future Flowers? Or do, you know, it's like it would be a shame to waste all the know-how that was acquired mm. in the three-month scramble to put everything online. Yeah. Obviously, a physical festival is infinitely preferable to anything else. However, there were certain things that worked brilliantly online, and it remains to be seen if we'll be able to hold on to certain things. Yeah, I mean, I imagine a hybrid, like, you know, first of all, those audience numbers are phenomenal. So 
That's yes, it. and that was just for the talks and the panels, the mm. interviews, discussions, competitions, all those peripheral yes. events. Because, you know, if you suddenly have access to this amazing industry god or whatever, mm. and all you need to do is click and, and watch it and you can ask questions, you yeah. know, there's something amazing about that. Yes, because um, we're the only film festival in Ireland that has a film market as well. We take mm. care of the business end of things in a, in a very big way. And that worked like a dream this year. Ah, okay, because I didn't tune into that this year, actually, but it, it went well. brilliantly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yes. So was that like sort of private Zoom rooms? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not involved in running the film fair, so mm. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. <laughs> and yes. it went really smoothly. Yeah. yeah. Ah, and then, yeah, as we were saying, like with pitching, if you're a writer or a storyteller, but you're not a performer, mm -hmm. and you suddenly have to stand up in front of 300 people and deliver this, you know, perfect one-time-only thing for 90 seconds, like, that's major stress. It is. But if you're just in your room and it's comfy, you've got your cup of tea and you've yeah. got your timer, so you know it's 90 seconds, you yes. know, completely different scenario. There's a lot to be said for it. And also, you know, if you are in real life making an elevator pitch of 90 seconds duration in, you know, you're in the lift with Steven Spielberg, that pitch is only done for one person. It's not done for 300 people in an audience ever. Yeah, it's completely so I, I know, I do think that's a little bit unfair, that mm. element of it. <laughs> I feel sorry for them. You well, know? it's like a free show for everyone else, you know. Yeah, I know, it is. Uh -huh. I know, it's cruel. I uh -huh. call it cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> but I have to say the pitches were so much better quality this year because of that. Who actually won the FLA pitch this year? It's a really exciting documentary pro project, which is uh, not a conventional documentary, I'm happy to say, mm -hmm. Rain Song. And I just, uh, it was, it's fantastic. I could tell, like 10 minutes into her pitch, I knew she was the winner because it's just a beautiful idea. She comes from a very parched landscape in Australia where they have terrible fires all the time. And she grew up wanting, having this romantic notion of the gifts that nature can bestow with rain the gift of rain and so she moved to Galway which is absolutely fantastic so that she could worship the rain and she wants to make a film about the importance of rain in, in always not just now but particularly now in this day and age um, but also exploring all the myths and fables and folklore associated with um, praying for rain or praying not for rain and you know all the wonderful mm. elements um, without without telling the audience what to think you know it'll be impressions of rain with poetry and images and beautiful things like that and I, I think that takes great skill you know it's harder to do that than it is to say this is what you must think about so and so mm, it sounds beautiful yes it does I'm thrilled that it that it uh, won and I hope uh, it'll the, the prize will go towards developing it to become a real film which I hope she will premiere at the Galway Film Flat please <laughs> I'm sure she will it's like <laughs> Galway is the rain capital so I can't think of a better place yeah and then I was thinking another bonus to the online side of it is like often at the flat it's like no I didn't get a ticket and I really want to see this thing but if it's also on the internet it sort of changes the dynamic now I know you restricted the number of mm -hmm. ticket sales um, so that, and that keeps the, the intimacy, you know, it's not just this free for all kind of thing, which is really important, but there is something nice. Like I know there was something I missed and I was like, oh, but it's okay. It's not at a specific time. I have a 30 hour or whatever. A That's full day right. Window, yes. Which, which is, is nice. Yes. Yeah. I got to see more films than I usually do because of that. Right. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> there's a lot to be said for, I don't know, maybe yeah. a hybrid between the two I styles. Wonder. Yes. And it could be something, I mean, who knows where we're going to be in 12 months time with regard to this bloody virus. I know. Who knows? I know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. 
But yeah, and like everybody misses the rowing club and the mm-hmm. crack and, you know, the hotel and just <laughs> like staying up till five in the morning, shooting the breeze. And you don't know who you're going to meet. John Cooper Clark totally. reading poetry in the hotel lobby at four o'clock in the morning. So yeah. much fun. Yeah. yeah. And potential collaborators just from, you know, random incidents, you know, like that's gold, that stuff. You can't get that on the Internet. Yeah. So, yeah. And and I mean, it was great that you did it because some other festivals had to just fold and, yeah. and say no. Telluride the mm. other day said they weren't going ahead. Yeah. Such a I shame. Thought, ha, pussies. <laughs> oh, I have to say, I have to praise Miriam Allen more than anybody who's the director of the flat for just jumping on the online horse and, you know, wrangling it into submission. Mm. She played a blinder. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Mm. And then... Um, so like, uh, do you get to watch, would you pre-watch some of the films? Or yeah. Do you, yeah. Most usually. Okay. Yeah. Especially if you have to do Q and A's and things like that. And if you're, right. because you're running around doing different Q, Q and A's at different times, you don't have time to watch the films with the audience. Mm. You, you, you do it pre beforehand. And you were saying you tend to do Q and A's with the documentary makers mm-hmm. rather than drama. Yes. Yes, because it's a very awkward position for an actress to be in, you know, to do a Q&A with a director who maybe you didn't get the job mm-hmm. for that particular film or a director who, you know, you hate his film, but he's in a position to give you work. You know, it's a, just a very yucky, yeah. nasty place to be in. So I always beg to be uh, relieved of duties for Irish drama. <laughs> and actually, I love doing the documentaries, not not just for that reason. The, the overriding reason really is that I do love documentaries as a form of filmmaking. Mm. I think it's a very important genre and I think it teaches you a lot about filmmaking, you know? Um, even though it's not drama, there's still an awful lot to learn and to to create with documentary. I'm fascinated by documentary films, not only because of their subject, but also because of the kind of restrictions it puts on a filmmaker. You know, mm. it's really interesting to see how people respond to the challenge. Yeah. And there is an element of like you cast your documentary. You want to find the best subject for the story. And, you know, you, you do want to elicit a performance of sorts or a kind of a naturalism and a spontaneity. So there's certain crossover, I think, between the two. Mm. Um, and I was delighted this year that the IFTAs have several short documentaries nominated. I'm thrilled about that. It's so great. Yes, it's a wonderful, wonderful addition. Mm. Mm. And you've lost the lovely Gar O'Brien to the IFTAs. We have, indeed, and he's much missed. But he was around, so, you know. Oh, nice. Yes. Yeah, very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, great. And then are there... Oh, you. we were talking about you had this... Uh, one man, one woman show. Oh, Lord. Yes, I have a lovely project. It's a one woman show called Ilsa. And it's uh, it was written for me by a writer in New York, a very highly regarded writer in New York who hasn't written for theater before. So we did a bit of dramaturging with the piece last year and uh, got it into shape, did a, uh, a reading in front of an audience um, and got it to a place where we were ready to rehearse it properly and go on the road with a little tour. And it's uh, based on the character that Ingrid Bergman plays in Casablanca. Her name is Ilsa. Ah. And it's the story of, the imagined story of what happened to her from the moment the plane takes off in Casablanca leading up to now, the present day. And it's sort of bookended by politics. Mm. And it's a very interesting subject and it's beautifully written so I was supposed to rehearse in Texas in March and then go on tour uh, a little tour 
And I was so disappointed. It was right on the cusp of the lockdown. And I was really, and I'm still disappointed that I'm not getting to do it because, you know, I've learned the lines. (laughs) (laughs) Please, Uh I want to do it. Um, But now I'm not disappointed. Now, when I look at the state that America is in, I am just heartily relieved that I didn't get stuck over there because it's heartbreaking what's happening. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. America's really in a a difficult place right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would have been your first one-woman show. Yes. Which is amazing. Yes. Because that's a lot to take on, you know. I guess, yeah. Well, we'd spent, I was ready to do it, though, because we'd spent about a year tinkering with it and doing a stage reading, two stage readings, in fact, in Mm. front of an audience. So it was ready to, it was ready to go. We were locked and loaded. So hopefully it's going to happen when everything's kind of clear up a little bit. Well, do you know what I was saying? I keep thinking this about theatre as well. I've tried watching these things online and it just doesn't work for me. Mm. It just doesn't. I've tried everything. I've tried watching Abbey Archive shows, national theatre shows. Mm. Uh, What else have I tried? live performances dialogues between people Mm. also respond things that have been written in response to the pandemic which so far i think have been absolutely dreadful i haven't seen anything inspiring and i've even watched shakespeare being done on green screens (laughs) with individuals in their homes and every time i see anything i want to throw the computer out of the window (laughs) it's so frustrating it makes me miss the real thing Mm. even more yeah so I don't think online is the answer to everything. And really what I'd like to do is because the one woman show, I could do that online. That wouldn't be too difficult with one person. Mm. But that's the beauty of it. You could do it anywhere. And I don't want to do it online. I would rather, if anything, do it in an amphitheater. I think bring back open air theater. <gasps> that would be amazing. Wouldn't it? Yeah. That's what I want to do. I mean, not maybe in Galway. You'd have <laughs> maybe but you see you could do it high tech, though. You could have like heated seats. Yeah. You could have sort of canvas coverings the way mm. the Romans had in the Colosseum. It's not exactly a ceiling, but yeah. it would protect you from the elements to some extent. There's a really lovely covering in Meeting House Square in Dublin, and they kind of collapse down and open out. So mm. it's like this electric umbrella. Uh-huh. And whenever there's events on, they can. To- it doesn't matter about the weather. Well, that's it. I think outdoor theatres would be great. That is, I'd love that. Yeah. Oh, and it's so nice to see it as well. Oh, it's such a pleasant experience. Mm. Mm, I'd love to do that. But then you probably have to, I mean, if you're going to perform it in America, you'd have to maybe wait till oh, I don't Tr- think Trump is out. I don't think it'll be happening in America, honey. <laughs> no. no, 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 no. I don't, I, it's heartbreaking. I don't see myself getting to America this year. Oh, I, I know, don't. I know. And I have so many friends over there and a lot of reasons to be there mm. for work. And yeah. it's just not happening. I know. They're really struggling. Yeah. Hopefully Biden gets in and Trump is out and, oh. Hopefully, yeah. we just have to wait and see. I know. And you know who's absolutely freaking amazing is Justice Ruth B. Oh, I Ginsburg. know. That poor woman, though. She's constantly in and out of hospital. It's like if it's not the pancreas, it's the liver, it's the brain. It's like yeah. the poor thing. Oh, she's just clinging on. She is, because... but she's indefatigable. Nothing yeah. stops her. She is oh, extraordinary. She's yeah, yeah, she's so fierce. But, you know, she's not going to be around much longer. No, and that's but a... she's just waiting for this campaign, this election. Yeah, and I think she... it's keeping her going. It is, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And what a good reason to stay hanging on. I know, mm. she's amazing. Mm. Um, okay, well, on that note, okay. I think this was a uh, gorgeous chat. Oh, good, are we done? Yeah. Yeah. So, Kate O'Toole, it was great having you on the podcast. Thank and I'm you. I'm delighted we had this chat. Me too. 
And I hope you get to this one woman show yeah. eventually. Yeah. It sounds great. <laughs> Thank you. And congrats on the Galway Film Flab being such a success. Thank you very much. It's quite, I mean, again, five million is unbelievable. It's just amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. And thank you so much. All the best. You too. Great.